Here we go. You're listening to Sock Talk Radio, the world for people who think. We are doomed to extinction because of agriculture. We have raped and pillaged this planet. There is a, a disinformation program, literally, for everyone, no matter who you are and what, what your interests are, uh, what your beliefs are, uh, which which way you're focusing. There is a website set up just for you to take you in and to vector your thinking and your attention into the way that they want you to think. Categories for things happening in the sky and the cosmos. If you read the scientific reports that come through and put the pieces together, you can see something big is happening. Yes, indeed. Something big is happening. It's Sock Talk Radio, show number 11. This week we are, yes, this week we are continuing with our look at science, Specifically, this week, it's psychiatry and psychology. And I think it's safe to say on that topic that the research into the human mind and the knowledge it has produced and the way that that knowledge has been used has contributed most significantly to the dire, dumbed-down and suppressed nature of human beings and human society today. Hot potato discuss. I'm throwing that open to the panel here. The panel here tonight is myself, Joe Quinn, Laura Knight-Yachik, Nal Bradley, Jason Martin, and Pierre Lescaudron. So, welcome to everybody, including myself. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Niall. Hello, <laughs> so, everybody. Hello. So, yes, as we said, psychiatry, psychology, last week was mainstream medicine, Doctors, pills. I hope you all listened to that one. Um, I really didn't think that it would be possible for me to be more disgusted from the researches that we did during this week for the topic of psychology. I, I really didn't expect it to be quite as bad as it turned out to be. I mean, of course, you know, you, you hear all kinds of horror stories about psychiatrists and stuff, but you don't really realize how rampant the uh, the disease of modern science is, except when you look at the the psychology and psychiatry field, it's, I mean, some of these guys are worse than Oppenheimer in a certain sense of the word. I mean, I think, you know, you know, Sigmund Freud has led to the, the suffering of more people than Oppenheimer ever did, you know. Okay. Yeah, and there are many similarities to what we realized and explained last week about hospitals and general medicine, except that for psychiatry, uh, the patients are vulnerable. As a mental institute patient, you can be uh, stripped out of your free will, your power of judgment. You're considered as insane, so not able to make a proper decision. So basically, you become the slave of authorities. For example, a psychiatrist can commit you to a mental institution, that's the law in, in the US, and for three days, you're committed there, they will give you drugs, powerful drugs, neuroleptics, elect, uh, electroshocks. And only after the three days of treatment, they present you to a judge who will say that 
that you are sane or insane. But after the three days of treatment, I mean, I call it treatment is more literally a destruction of the mind. After the three days, the, you are insane, even if before the three days you were not insane. And then you commit it for a longer time, and then you get more drug and more shock therapy and deep sleep therapy and etc. And then literally, your mind get destroyed and get transformed in an obedient robot. I mean, it's like it's the shades of the Inquisition, you know. Where the, of course you'll you'll admit to any sin after after you've been put on the rack. Absolutely, yeah. But before we jump right in there to um, to the horrors of modern day psychiatry. Maybe we should have a look at the history. And that's why Laura's here, actually, because she's a historian. And we're going to look at the history of psychiatry and psychology, modern psychiatry and psychology. And I think earlier on when we were discussing this a little bit, Laura said to me, or said to in my hearing, that it had something to do with the dawn of the Industrial Revolution and the the kind of deification, essentially, of science, the scientific method. It actually goes back a little bit further than that. Uh, the funny thing is, is that after the collapse of the Bronze Age, a civilization of the Mediterranean, and this is uh, quite a bit further back than the Industrial Revolution, mm -hmm. as you can guess. Just a tiny amount. Uh, yeah, we're talking about the Bronze Age, the class about 1200 B.C., and then the reemergence of uh, civilization, uh, at, you know, starting you know 900, 800, 700 uh, BC and forward, uh, we had the Assyrians that arose as the first empire following the collapse of that civilization. Then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and uh, you know each one defeated the other and took over, and then finally the Romans. And each one that defeated the one before them, you know, took on some of the elements of that particular civilization. But in any event, there's a great little book called uh, uh, The Ancient City by uh, Fustel de Coulanges. Yeah, thanks for pronouncing that for me, Pierre. <laughs> his, his name was actually Numa, which was one of the names of the ancient Roman kings. Homme les deux fromage. <laughs> Thank you. That's okay. Yeah, wow. Everything was just revealed. The secrets of the universe. I'm flabbergasted. Um, okay. well, that ends the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, we had a little hiccup there. Apparently, our phone line dropped us. That's France for you. But in any event, uh, yes, as I was saying, and I hope you got the last part uh, where I was talking about the Bronze Age civilization collapse, and then it was followed by the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, then the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then, of course, the Romans supposedly went on for a very long time, and then that civilization collapsed, and our own is uh, what has emerged from that. But in any event, back during the time of the... Um, the emergence of the the Greek civilization, and can't really properly call it an empire because it wasn't uh, extensive in the way the other empires were, but it still uh, manifested a certain hegemony over the uh, you know areas along the coast of the Mediterranean, and people you know, really looked up to the Greeks and admired and emulated them. But if you can imagine, 
now. Imagine the effects of the destruction of uh, civilization, the Bronze Age civilization, and imagine that it happened via cometary bombardment, similar to the recent Russian event, only on a much wider scale. Uh, I believe that there is one archaeologist who proposed this. Uh, he was he was actually French, and he wrote an extensive book on the topic. Do you remember his name, Pierre? I don't remember his name, but I remember that his theory was, was that it was the explosion of a mega volcano that triggered the end of the civilization. Well, that's not the one I'm thinking about. The one I'm thinking about uh, was some somewhere in the early 20th, late 19th century, and he wrote... Uh, he wrote that the level of earthquakes that must have occurred during the time that the Bronze Age collapsed was so extensive that it was just mind-boggling, which was one of the reasons his theory was completely rejected. And uh, he, uh, you know, if, if you take into account the idea of cometary bombardment, then everything begins to make sense. But in any event, what happened was, was that... Uh, there were, in those difficult times, the emergence of what I believe were pathological individuals who took advantage of what could be called an ancient uh, practice of shock doctrine. You have a situation where everybody is in shock and it enables those who do not feel shock, who do not succumb to the terror and, and the panic of a terrifying situation, who then are enabled to rise up and take control, and they see this and they take advantage of it. So they institute rules and regulations, they make themselves high priests and kings, and they uh, create religions or political systems uh, for their own benefit, of course. And all the people who are in shock, the people who are normal, emotional uh, human beings, fall into line because they, of course, are terrified that the, the gods are going to destroy them further or, you know, wreck destruction upon them again. So, Fustel de Coulange, how'd I do that here? Not bad, huh? That was very good. Okay, so, so Fustel, we'll just call him Fustel. He wrote a great book called The Ancient City where he uh, explains how, how this manifested, uh, what kind of rules and regulations were put into effect for the benefit of controllers and how they um how those rules and regulations uh and customs and beliefs are at the very core of our modern civilization and if you read this book you will see you know how bizarre it is that we still live under a system that was put into motion something like uh you know 3600 years ago so but in any event, the uh, the Greeks came along a few hundred years afterwards, uh, and there were no more comets. There were no more strange things going on in the sky. So they had the idea that they needed to find another way to control people because people were getting a little bit restless and they were uh, acting rebellious. So they came up with the idea of making certain laws and institutions and having colonies and philosophy and instituting the idea that what we'll do is we'll put the wisest men in charge. And these wise men, they'll be philosophers. So a lot of the early philosophers, so-called philosophers, were really legislators. And you'll, you'll read this repeatedly when you read about these philosophers, that they were legislators. Uh, 
And they weren't legislators necessarily because they were such great philosophers, but they were considered to be educated men of their time, and they were given the job by the rulers of the time of taking over colonies and legislating and finding ways to, you know, keep people under control and make them happy and and uh, keep everything going smoothly. But the very idea that philosophy could exist, that one could think about questions of the the order of the universe, man's place within it, uh, how to respond to the universe, you know, what to do, how to behave, uh, to prevent dire things from happening, opened the door to actual, real thinking, thinking philosophy. And it's kind of the same way that, uh, and I was saying this earlier today, is, uh, somebody came up with the idea for the Internet with the idea of uh, control, using it for military purposes and controlling people all around the world or uh, communicating for military purposes. But it ended up being a great system for people's, ordinary people all over the planet to communicate with one another and share knowledge and information. And I quoted at the time the... Uh, the, the line of Faust, which is possibly paraphrased, but uh, Mephistopheles is he who continually intends evil but ends up doing good because, uh, you know, an, an evil mind can plot and plan to do something dire and dreadful, but a creative, souled individual, you know, person who has a positive orientation can take that and make uh, make something good out of it. You know, the the old idea of making lemonade out of lemons. But in any event... Historically speaking, this uh, idea of philosophy led to speculations about what went on in the human mind, what was the human makeup, you know, what made people tick. And among the best of the uh, ideas that came out during that time, which, believe it or not, are only now being rediscovered in modern cognitive science, were the ideas of the Stoic philosophers. Uh, There were some good ideas also uh, among the Pythagoreans, uh, the philosophers of Pythagorean school, and then, of course, Plato came along and plagiarized uh, the Pythagorean material and possibly some Stoic material, and his twists and turns on uh, philosophy and on the nature of the human being, psychology, were really rather similar to that of Freud, and he uh, his points of view were the ones that were adopted in hell's sway, uh, but we'll get into that a little further on. But in any event, Rome collapsed and things were really, uh, there wasn't much going on in Europe and around the Mediterranean for several hundred years. And the great French historian Marc Bloch, in his book about the French agricultural land, the French, uh, uh, you know, I can't recall the name of it right offhand, but it was a study of the French um, agriculture. Uh, he points out that as late as uh, the 15th, 16th century, there were still there were still lords or uh, uh, nobility or whatever in France, you know, calling for settlers to come and settle because the land had been laid waste for so long that there were no people to populate it. There were no people to perform the agriculture. There was, uh, you know, things were pretty bad, and of course there was. You know, part of that could have been because of the mass death that occurred uh, in the 14th and 15th centuries from the Black Death. But still, it, it gave 
it gives an impression that that Europe was not terribly densely populated at that time. And Rome, Rome that was still being excavated in the 17th century. Yeah. Excavated because it was covered with eight silt. meters of silt. Eight meters, just get that. Rome was covered with eight meters of silt, and that didn't happen in a day, and it, in a, you know, unless it was from a cometary explosion in the Mediterranean. Um, and it certainly wasn't done. I mean, eight meters of silt over the entire city of Rome from the river. I mean, come on, get real. Especially when you consider that the sites in Greece, Olympia, Diocletian's Palace, and the coast Croatia. of Croatia were also covered by many meters of silt. So there was something that really dire that happened about uh, in the 6th and 7th centuries. So basically, like, this has been a very long explanation of, of the T-shake theory. This should happen in Greece, which is pretty much the way it always goes. It's been going on for 2,000 years, 3,000 years or more. It keeps happening. It keeps repeating. Uh, it's like a cyclical thing where a lot of bad stuff happens. Uh, people get really, really scared, and then psychopaths move in, and they institute more or less the same system that was there before, Take over and screw everybody over. Well, that, yeah, but what, what I'm trying to get to, I mean, that's pretty pretty succinct, but what I'm trying to get to is the fact that after Rome collapsed and after these particular ideas, say the Stoics and other philosophers had kind of, you know, made their way around the world, when things reemerged, there was Plato and there was the Bible. There was the Catholic Church. And it was kind of almost an ad hoc creation to some extent by the uh, by the Franks who rose to the top at the end of this long period of quiescence in Europe. And the church held sway for a while. And for a long time, psychology was just what the Bible allowed, which was mm. a kind of an amalgamation of Hebrew and Platonic uh, philosophies and psychological ideas. It was a very narrow, restricted view of the human being. When the Reformation occurred, you know, people turned against the Catholic Church and the Reformation occurred, that then led into the idea of truth and searching for truth. And, of course, when people who were really conscientious had the idea that they wanted the truth, they, of course, turned that on their religion. I mean, they could see that their religion wasn't very truthful, and that there were problems, so the scientific revolution was born. And at that point in time, they began to reread some of these ancient texts, you know, things by Plato, the scraps that were left from the Stoics, uh, you know, different kinds of philosophy and different kinds of psychologies that were uh, integrated into those philosophies, and thus was born the scientific revolution. The scientific revolution then led to mechanization, technology. Mm. And then the human being was seen as a mechanical object, a uh, a machine. Yeah. And then a lot, you know, that went on for a little while and then along came Freud. Well, so what you're basically saying is that you know, around the time of the Rome, the Greeks and the in the Roman Empire, you had an understanding of psychiatry and psychology of the human psyche and ideas that are similar to what were are only being discovered today, as you just said. Uh, and then you had the fall of the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages, the resurgence of religion, which basically put pay to any any in-depth investigation into human psychology and understanding of the human mind. It was all just religion. And it was only until the Industrial Revolution 
around that time that they start that science came back and redefined uh then you know sort of look into the nature of, of of the human psyche and human psychology and stuff and it's, what's interesting actually is is that around that time the around the in the 1800s you had the spiritism or spiritualism yeah spiritualism so people started to investigate and spiritual it, ideas yeah and the whole thing i think that you could say that uh psychology as a they had the idea when the spiritualist movement uh, began to emerge uh, that yeah that there could be a scientific investigation of spirit of soul you know of something beyond the material life and there were uh, I mean Conan Doyle William Crookes um, Ala Holmes oh. Holmes yeah. Uh, Daniel Dunglass Home, who was not a scientist, but he was a, really a fantastic psychic. And then mm-hmm. there was William James. William James came along, you know, a, you know, a little bit later. And there were there are just many great minds, some of the greatest scientific minds uh, of the time that were turning their attention to exploring the human psyche uh, via the spiritualistic uh, approach. And this had to be. This had to be done away with. Uh, I don't know if it was a conscious thing or not, but it was, it was part, a reaction. It was, it, it was a reaction, I'm sure, because, you know, for example, uh, one of the most vociferous opponents of a spiritualist uh, approach was, uh, what, was it William Faraday. Uh-huh. Uh, and he and the reason was, was because he was a devout fundamentalist. Uh-huh. He was he was a, a, a Protestant fundamentalist, but also a scientist. So he was also. Marital. Yeah, so it was it was kind of weird because it was he he offered to investigate Daniel Sunglass home, but only if home would sign a document that even if he found his his uh, abilities to be true, that home would um, cease and desist any of his spiritualistic practices and, disavow any and would disavow reality any, to it. Yeah, and which was basically basically uh, you know kind of putting him in a bind. Of course, home refused. So there was a reaction against mm-hmm. the spiritualist thing and the idea that you could investigate the human mind materialistically, scientifically, mm-hmm. not not allowing anything that you know spilled over into uncertain domains. And just to make the point here, I mean, this topic of psychiatry and psychology—it's an investigation into the human mind and human nature—and obviously. Very easily, kind of crosses over into spirituality and religion, etc. What are the dimensions of the mind? How big is it? How heavy well, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's extreme. It's, Can you measure it? It's automatically esoteric, almost. If you know what I mean? But it hasn't been framed in that way in modern times. But just to give you an idea of the time frame we're talking about here, uh, in terms of the history, the beginning of psychiatry and psychology, there was a guy called Professor Wilhelm Wundt who was born in 1832 and died in 1920. He was a German physician, psychologist, physiologist, philosopher, professor, etc. He is known today as one of the founding fathers of modern psychology. As a matter of fact, Wundt was noted, or sorry, Wundt, who noted psychology as a science apart from biology and philosophy, was the first person to ever call himself a psychologist. He is widely regarded as the father of experimental psychology. In 1879, he founded the first formal laboratory for psychological research at the University of Leipzig. And this marked psychology as an independent field of study. 
And one of his main here's a summation essentially of his of his beliefs and his own his approach to the whole topic was that he declared man's thoughts, personality and behavior nothing more than chemical reactions in the brain. Man, being an animal without a soul, was to be trained not to be a thinker. And interestingly, Pavlov, Ivan Pavlov, studied in one's lab in the late 1800s in behavior modification, not just on animals, as he's famous for, but also on human beings. So that gives you an idea of the beginnings of psychology and psychiatry. This was the first psychologist, first official psychologist, and that was his approach. It was all mechanistic, and it was to Again, show that human think. beings were little more than animals, etc. And I think this uh, 19th century is a crucial point in history. It's a time where religion starts to lose its grip on human psyche. There's the, and we see at the same time the emergence of science, I mean science, a specific kind of science that will develop this mechanistic, reductionist, neo-Darwinian uh, vision of the world and of human beings, human Most as a machine, and therefore will exclude anything uh, related to what we could, could call spirit, conscious, uh, or soul in human, in human beings. It's interesting to see the synchronicity between the emergence. You mentioned Pavlov, for the, the founder of psychology, or you have Darwin as well, you have mm -hmm. Freud. All around the same time, yeah. In those fundamental scientific fields, you have a founding father that interestingly develop his ideas on the very same reductionist, materialistic foundations. Well, mm -hmm. people were ready for it. I mean, they had just lived so long under the, the thumbscrews of, of the Catholic Church, uh, physically and metaphysically speaking. Um, and so they were ready for it. And science came along and it said, hey, uh, religion hasn't answered the questions that you've been asking, those those deep philosophical questions, which is why we had the religion in the first place, and they and they promised us that they could give us answers. They'll explain basically. everything. Yeah, basically, because you know, I mean, people want to know why am I here? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what's the purpose of man? And but what they, happens after I die? But and, they did spirituality and focus only on science well, mechanism no, I mean, for for a reason, right? Because the Catholic Church gave them ridiculous answers, and as natural philosophy started to evolve at that time with the printing press, people were talking and communicating with each other. They started to observe the natural world and say, wait a minute, what the Catholic Church is saying, they're not right about the solar system, they're not right about this, they're not right about that. What if they're wrong about the afterlife? So people, uh -huh. of course, got a little afraid. Mm -hmm. And then science came along and said, hey, we'll answer those questions. Here we are, you know, a couple hundred years later, they still haven't answered the questions. In fact, what they have basically said is, oh, by the way, those questions are ridiculous to begin with, mm -hmm. which is why you see this proliferation of, of new religions and new custom spiritualities, because people are like, hey, wait a minute. You promised us some answers, and you can't say that. You can't say that not only is there no answer, but that we're stupid for asking the question in the first place, because that's just not going to slide. But mm -hmm. that's, that's science in a nutshell. Another reason why human beings were ripe to swallow such a paradigm, reductionist paradigm, is because during the 19th century, you have been a tremendous series of technological breakdowns, breakthrough, uh, steam machine, train. The first plane at the very mm -hmm. end of the 19th century, cars, electricity, energy, photography. power, mm -hmm. photography. And it was so magical, so groundbreaking, that, that human beings were likely to throw the baby with the bathwater mm -hmm. and give everything yeah, an exclusively mechanistic explanation. Yeah. 
Science held a lot. Of, so wonderful. Science held a lot of promise in that sense. It had it had produced a it lot results. of new things. And but that's the that's the key to the Ponzi scheme or any other kind of scam. The first the first couple of times you take the person's money, you give it back. You give them more money so that they think that wow, I'm going to make more, and then they invest more and more and more. Uh-huh. That's how scamming works. That's how a Ponzi scheme works. Yeah. The people who started the beginning, they get paid mm-hmm. a little bit. But the problem here is that it seems to be that the problem is that the type of people who came along um, providing like, these answers, providing these answers, uh, particularly in the field of psychiatry and psychology, this obviously this guy won't the first guy describing he decided man was an animal without a soul to be trained, uh, and that you know that led to Pavlov and you know behavioral. Uh, attempts to, to and you could say that, that emerged from Darwin, but the odd thing is, is that the co-founder of the Darwinian uh, explanation of uh, species selection um, uh, abnegated those views. He uh, went completely the other way, mm-hmm. and even Darwin himself acknowledged the possibility of epigenetics. It's only the neo-Darwinian that went for. More radical vision, more radical theory, excluding any kind of epigenetic, epigenetic, epigenetic meaning influence of your behavior, of your environment, or the genetic expression of your own genes. So we went down the drain. I think there, there's another major factor we need to throw in the mix. Uh, at this time, 19th century, there was widespread social upheaval mm-hmm. as a result of technological innovation and mass industrialization. Um, people moving into the cities, cities becoming very, very overpopulated, widespread unrest, and the need from this pressure from below creating a need from above of how to manage it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this was in the late uh, 19th century, and moving into the 20th century, you had uh, Freud, Edward Bernays, uh, coming up with this with this foundational idea that, and this was based on their observation and experience supposedly with the uh, World War, the First World War and previous wars just at the end of the 19th century, that um, people essentially were um, dominated or driven by potentially violent, uh, unconscious desires and needs like the the violent mob that people this was a real danger uh freud himself <clears throat> was a bit apparently just disappointed dismayed at this aspect that he saw of human nature but there were other people in positions of power who latched on to this idea of human beings having these unconscious drives to be controlled uh as a way to develop policy from a government oh. point of view one thing that I'd like to say on this is it seems a lot of that had to do <clears throat> excuse me, with uh, kind of like what I think I could call the, the Nazi cover-up, which was this idea that these people felt really, really uh, powerfully motivated to cover up the idea that the problem in Nazi Germany, what had, you know, what had been, even in World War I, what mm-hmm. had motivated the masses, was not that the people of Germany were intrinsically evil. It was you know, the psychopathic leaders who were in charge and that this was a serious issue. And it seems like everything in, in psychoanalysis and even you know psychology for the next you know fifty or sixty years um, was centered around the idea of concealing the fact that uh, people were 
grotesquely manipulated mm-hmm. into into doing those things that it wasn't that they were intrinsically evil um and so yeah. absolutely but the the whole theory behind and the understanding uh, behind psychology and the study of the human mind and these unconscious violent uh desires and drives within human beings that was used by governments uh very quickly after it was became a popular idea it was used to manipulate people uh to get them to do what the government wanted so yeah, just one comment about uh, what Neil said about this period of social upheaval and controlling population. Uh, under my eyes, there's this uh, quick quote from uh, Fulton. Fulton, uh, in the 30s, he made experimental chimpanzees testing uh, leucotomy or lobotomy. And um, here is what is written. Following the surgical removal of the frontal lobes, the behavior of both primates changed markedly. And Becky... Becky is the female chimpanzee who was uh, aggressive, rebellious. And Becky was pacified to such a degree that Jacobsen apparently stated it was as if she had joined a happiness cult. Uh. And uh, in the the rest of the show, we probably go back to uh, this notion of rebellion, oppression, breaking people's mind, making subservient individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> this guy Joe mentioned, Edward Bernays, um, is a very interesting character in, in, around this time. If you haven't seen it, you've got to watch a documentary by Adam Curtis called Century of the Self. It's a four-part series. I think you can get it, watch it online. He, It's mainly about Freud, but in the opening episode or two, he concentrates on his nephew, Edward Bernays. And this guy was instrumental in making Freud's theories and and the application of other psychological theory uh, widespread because it was then used to control people. And some of the examples are very, very enlightening. Um, at one point, in fact, Bernays was uh, like a He's like a PR advisor to well, several U.S. presidents. He invented public relations Yeah, in the 1920s. Yes, that's right. As Bernays says himself uh, when he's interviewed in this documentary, we were calling it propaganda at the time, but then the Germans came along later, sullied that term, so I went home and I came up with a new term and I called it public relations. Mm-hmm. He was also instrumental in getting Freud's work published and disseminated in the U.S., that's right. Uh, Freud was actually bombing. He, his savings were wiped out during the hyperinflation in Austria and Germany in the 20s. And Freud was a broken man. He wrote to his nephew in, in New York, Edward Bernays, asking for help. And Bernays effectively became his publicist. And his books, his ideas were then spread in the US. And this is how psychoanalysis and the whole basis of Freudian theory became so dominant. It was with the help of Edward Bernays. Yeah, and it produced, you know, it very quickly was taken up by other, you know, psychiatrists and politicians and uh, even journalists and different people, uh, kind of high-profile people in, in American society. Uh, one of them was Walter Lippmann, um, and he decided that because of this idea of that had become popular with Bernays and Freud, the idea basically that... Um, 
the way these submerged, dangerous forces lurking just beneath the surface of modern society. And these are forces that could erupt easily uh, among the population and to produce frenzied mobs and even take down governments because that, that became popular and got the attention of the leaders. Uh, this guy, Walter Lippmann, he promoted the idea that essentially this meant democracy wasn't really viable in, in, in its literal, uh, on, on the popular understanding of it, and it had to be rethought. Uh, he said that basically a new elite was needed to manage what he called the bewildered herd. That's, that's you. Um, and it should be done through psychological techniques, these understanding of these psychological processes within human beings that would control the unconscious feelings of the masses. Yeah. Well, Freud was rejected by academics back in Austria. But in the U.S., when they heard these ideas, it was like music to their ears mm -hmm. because now they have a framework for uh, continuing the status quo, not changing it. They don't intend to, to actually liberate. They don't intend to actually institutionalize real democracy. No. They can take the terminology and create the impression of democracy. Um, Edward Bernays was 26 when he was an advisor to Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. And he was actually involved in getting the U.S. into the war, into the Great War, the First World War. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the U.S. Had, up to that point decided, no, we're not going, you know, mm -hmm. we're not going to get involved in overseas affairs. Bernays was brought in to turn things around with the help of a PR campaign. Mm -hmm. America is in the war. At the end of the war, Bernays is personally at the Versailles Peace Conference. And he organizes things in such a way that by the time Wilson arrives in France, he's greeted by millions of people on the streets of Paris mm -hmm. as a liberator. Vive Wilson, vive democracy for small countries. In fact, the term making the world safe for democracy, Edward Bernays came, came up, with, up that. with that. Yeah. That was his phrase, among many <laughs> other things. Tell them today. today. That, that's, that's 80 years ago. Well, let me put something in really quick here. I've got a, a, a little quote from Freud himself um, that... Uh, on board ship to America, he did not feel that he was bringing that country a new panacea. With his typically dry wit, he told his traveling companions, we are bringing them the plague. And that's from Manoni, 1971, page 168. Hmm. Uh, basically, Freud's unscientific speculations are a psychological operation in the service of waging war on normal human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the impression I get is that Freud came up with this idea and it was based on, like we were, we were talking earlier and we figured that Freud made the kind of foundational mistake in terms of his, his basic um, theory of psychoanalysis and, and what makes human beings tick and that he was essentially projecting his own issues onto the population at large and not taking into consideration that there are differences, you know. You think? Just a little. I mean, give us an explanation there, Jason, of the kind of, kind of uh, you know, wacky I know. stuff. <laughs> I mean, uh, this guy's stuff was was really kind of crazy. I mean, most of his theories kind of center around this infantile sexuality, this sort of concept that that children are basically insatiable sluts that run around fondling themselves in, in every possible way, and that the the 
problems that develop in adulthood are from their parents sort of like chastising or stopping them from wanking off all over the place. And uh, they get smacked by the mom saying, don't do that. And then suddenly they get a neurosis 20 years later. I, I mean, it's it's insane. I mean, a lot of his theories kind of focus around things like castration complex. I mean, like if I was circumcised on the seventh day, I'd probably be afraid people were going to cut off my wiener too. Mm-hmm. Eighth day. Or eighth day or yeah. whatever it is. Like I know. <laughs> and actually... Here is one parallel between Freud and Plato. Both are more or less subtly proponents or defenders of pedophilia. Because yeah. Oh, yeah, Plato style. was clearly about it, uh, clearly favorable to such practices. And Freud, by asserting that these are the children that are sexually attracted to the adults, to the parents, between the lines says that if incest occurs, if sexual abuse occurs, it's not the responsibility of the adults. It's the responsibility of the child and of this unrepressed... For being what he did was for being being a temptress? Pulsions. What he did was worse. Uh, first, he came out with this seduction theory, right? And he, and he dropped it pretty quick, and he wrote to, to one of his friends, I don't have the direct quote. I'm sorry that I don't have the direct quote, because it was beautiful. Um, that he dropped the, the whole idea that, you know, fathers were going around molesting all their kids because he had all these hysterical and neurotic patients and he was seeing them and all of them were reporting sexual abuse from the majority of them, their fathers. And he went and he produced his paper and nobody was really interested and then he dropped it and he wrote to his friend basically saying that um, I dropped it because it just seemed so improbable that so many fathers were sexually molesting their, their daughters and their children um, that basically we would have to consider almost all fathers to be sexual child perverts molesters. and child molesters if this were true. So it can't be true. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. What Freud did is he turned uh, all of these things into fantasies. Mm-hmm. Um, they all became dreams and representations of this nebulous unconscious. Um, and his daughter, Anna Freud, just t- took it to another level. She, she wrote a paper early on. Um, explaining how children have fantasies about being physically abused, like being beat, beating fantasies, um, as a way to compensate for their shame for masturbating. And, I mean, this is just such a ridiculous concept. The kid comes to you and says, my dad's beating you. Oh, you were waking off last night, and uh, that's really what happened. So he turned everything, actually, and more than – he kind of dropped this whole children seduce to the whole thing. that They're just making it up. Mm-hmm. He really created a framework that could basically say if a child comes to you and says, I've been sexually molested, it's they're an insatiable slut. They've been in the bathtub diddling themselves, and you know they're just making it up. You know, that's pretty much, I mean, that's psycho, that's psychoanalysis in, in, in a nutshell. You have problems because you're making it up because you can't cope with the fact that you're just nothing more than a pleasure-seeking animal. And and that's, that's, that's Freud's theory, more or less. I mean, there's some Oedipus stuff here and, oh, yeah, the Greeks here and stuff like that. But for the most part, that's all like, you know, a sugar coating on this, this infantile sexuality uh, pill that, you know, no no thinking, feeling intelligent adult could ever swallow. But I think if you if you were in a, a psychotherapy session with Freud and you had half a half a brain, you would come away knowing a lot more about Freud than you would about yourself. Well, that's the problem because Freud uh, Freud created his psychoanalytic theories about personality basically telling us what was going on inside his head, you know, because you can uh you can read the way he describes how a child forms its personality and compare it to someone like Desmond Morris, uh, who describes a similar thing, but in a very different way. Uh, Desmond will explain, for example, that the sucking of a child is to bond with the mother. Uh, 
you know, and the posterior, the pacifier, and toys are used to remember the warmth of the mother and the love and the care. And they want to remember the touch of his skin. You know, Freud, on the other hand, will say that the child is, is nursing or sucking at the mother's breast, not for nourishment, warmth, and care, and love, and bonding, but to uh, fulfill its erotic fantasies, mm-hmm. you know, that the child is having an orgasm. So, yeah, he basically states that the, the children go through various stages where they receive what amounts to sexual gratification from erogenous zones, including like the mouth, the anus, the breasts, the genitals, um, all of these different things. So he basically goes around saying like every time you wipe a child's bum, you know, he's... You're stimulating them uh, sexually. And then it's disgusting in a certain. You know, we ought to we ought to keep also in mind that Freud was a confirmed cocaine addict. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1884, he was getting his cocaine from army doctors, and he wrote to his friend Fleiss on June the 12th, 1895, "I need a lot of cocaine." So he had decades of cocaine addiction. Yeah. So, yeah, clearly Freud was projecting his own sexual perversion. Was perversion. that a Freudian slip? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly Freud was projecting his own sexual perversion on a universal basis on every human being. Uh-huh. And also he was probably projecting his own narratives about uh, this reversal of roles and blaming the victim, blaming the, the abused child. Uh-huh. Because when you look at Anna's life, that was uh, Anna Freud, his daughter. Anna Freud, mm-hmm. his daughter. So you see all the problems she went through, all the what she said in psychotherapy, how she ended her, her life, all the um, health problems. You start to wonder what really happened in her childhood. She mm-hmm. never got married and spent the rest of her life as a spinster living with her hetero life mate. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was she just fought whole, with regularly. <laughs> it's just so. It's a questionable situation. I mean, I think that a lot of his theories, especially about child seduction, came because I think he diddled her. To be quite honest, I think he molested Anna. I mean, it just—it's so suspicious the way that she stands in all of her pictures, the way she looks, the way that she looked up them. She had a real obvious victim situation, mm-hmm. she was a victim of him, mm-hmm. and how she conducted herself in later life. And going around trying to cure all everyone else. Yeah. Investigate everyone else's problems was a uh, was a uh, yeah it was a, it was I don't know I'm suspicious essentially, I'm just, uh, essentially suspicious yeah. and then well then there's the problem of Freud's so-called psychotherapy okay um, he lied about his so-called scientific case studies he officially claimed he healed people but his letters to his buddy Wilhelm Fleiss you know he said he confessed to him that he didn't uh, he complained that the Rat Man or the Wolf Man uh, cases that things got worse after psychoanalysis and the individuals never got healed. Uh, that's just one example of the falsity of Mr. Freud or Mr. Fraud. Um, there is uh, there is uh, an excerpt here from Carl Jung. As many people know, Jung had been uh, a follower of Freud for a period of time and then he broke with him completely. And this is what he had to say about Freud. And this is from Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, Chapter 5. He says, Above all, Freud's attitude toward the spirit seemed to me highly questionable. Wherever in a person or in a work of art, an expression of spirituality in the intellectual, not the supernatural sense, came to light, he suspected and insinuated that it was repressed sexuality. 
Anything that could not be directly interpreted as sexuality, he referred to as psychosexuality. I protested that this hypothesis carried to its logical conclusion would lead to an annihilating judgment upon culture. Culture would then appear as a mere farce, the morbid consequence of repressed sexuality. Yes, he agreed, so it is, and that is just a curse of fate against which we are powerless to contend. To me, it was a profound disappointment that all the efforts of the probing mind, that is, Freud's mind, had apparently succeeded in finding nothing more in the depths of the psyche than the all-too-familiar and all-too-human limitations. I had grown up in the country among peasants, and what I was unable to learn in the stables I found out from the Rabelaisian wit and the untrammeled fantasies of our peasant folklore. Incest and perversions were not remarkable novelties to me and did not call for special explanation. Along with criminality, they formed part of the black bees that spoiled the taste of life by showing me only too plainly the ugliness and meaninglessness of human existence. The cabbages thrive in the dung was something I had always taken for granted. In all honesty, I could discover no helpful insight in such knowledge. It's just that all those people are city folk who know nothing about nature in the human stable, I thought, sick and tired of these ugly matters. So in these few paragraphs from Jung's autobiography, we find the heart of the matter. Freud was a materialist. He was unable to conceive man more than anything other than animal instinct or the repression of animal instinct. Man's yearning for communion with the eternal seemed to Freud the fevered imagination of a sexually repressed ape. Mm-hmm. So in other words, he basically suffered the psychopath's inability to understand the emotional and spiritual life of a normal man and a normal woman. Mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins today. <laughs> and here we can see the damage induced by the psychoanalytic movement, which for decades was the one and only theory of the mind prevalent in most psychotherapist uh, office. You had this theory developed by a psychopathic individual, asserting that human beings, children, are guilty because of their sexual unrepressed or repressed pulsions. And at the same time, in front of the psychiatrist, you have a lot of people who have been abused sexually, who have suffered incest, who are not necessarily aware of it, but who are deeply damaged by this abuse, who go to a practitioner to get advice, to get help, and this practitioner will repeat the third mantras and tell the victim basically, you're the guilty part. You're the one who seduced your parents. You're the one who is responsible for what happened because of your pulsions, because of all these dirty sexual thoughts that invade your mind. Basically, what Freud had to say about sexuality and about human nature and about reality in general was just a projection of his own sick mind. Mm-hmm. It was a continuation of monotheistic, patriarchal kind of religion that thread this, you're hopelessly inert in sin because of your your horrible sinful flesh. You know, I mean, that's kind of really what you know psychoanalysis is saying to you, basically, that you're an incorrigible pervert, um, that, you know... They assert that that all men are born sort of lascivious bisexuals who would sleep with anything uh, if they had the chance, and it's only because of some corrective socializing behavior. Uh, he calls it like this 
polymorphous perversity mm-hmm. that um, that all children are born polymorphously perverse, meaning they sleep with animal, mineral, vegetable, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want, and that it's the influence of of society, which is an arbitrary construct that forces them to become heterosexual or forces yeah. them to become this, that, and the other thing. Well, here we, there we see the problem with psychiatry today is that if you go to a psychiatrist, you cannot know to what extent that psychiatrist and what they're telling you is a projection of the psychiatrist themselves and their own their own inner innate un, unknown or un, not un, not understood uh, drives and feelings and beliefs. I mean, is that the fundamental truth? That's, that's the real problem with everything. Yeah. But, but when you're going to get your, your head sorted out and, and to get some feedback, to get someone to reflect back to you what's going on inside you, very often you're just getting uh, a mirror of what's inside the psychiatrist. They're projecting it onto you. And in a lot of, in a lot of psychothera- psychotherapeutic uh, sessions, the psychotherapist is getting more out of it than you are. Though, it's a very rare person today. There's very few who actually can help other people be objective about it like there's and there's very few books as well i mean there's a morass of of uh you know psychotherapeutic uh, manuals and uh, documentation and the the teaching and the what people are taught in university when they when they undertake degrees and stuff is all essentially freudian based and if you want something that actually makes sense and is more object, more objective and more helpful and has a chance to help you, you have to go and look for a very tiny number of people that are thankfully, you know, the well enough known today. Like um, what do you call her, um, Martha Stout? Martha Stout and people like that who have shown that they actually have some real understanding of human nature, and you're better off. Actually, just reading books on it rather than going to a person, I think. Yeah, here's a, let's talk a little bit about Freud, Freudianism, or psychotherapy as a as a cult, which is what it is. I mean, we've got there's a book on Amazon about the about Freud that's about his circle, and it says from the blurb, it says in the spring of 1919, Sigmund Freud brought his closest colleagues, Ferenczi, Abraham, Rank, Sox, and Jones, together and gave them each a golden ring, symbolizing the formation of a new force in psychoanalysis, securing their undying loyalty to the master. Freud called this group his secret committee. This inner circle of men helped Freud to expel Carl Jung, and they set the ground rules of psychoanalysis for decades to come. And that's uh, the book is The Secret Ring, Freud's Inner Circle and the Politics of Psychoanalysis by Phyllis Grosskirth. Um, this book talks about the history of his secret committee, which was made to ensure the continuation of the existence of the psychoanalytic movement. This committee initially consisted of Ernest Jones, Carl Abraham, Otto Rank, Hans Sock, Sandor Frenchy, and Freud was the ringleader. Um, I'm sorry, but the whole Mordor, Sauron, Nine Rings of Power thing is just coming up here. Yeah. yeah. One ring to rule them all. Well, One ring to find them. It says here, a quote from the book, a quote from the introduction. 
is that I began to rethink the inherent significance of the committee whose members had each received a special ring of friendship from Freud. It occurred to me that the story of the committee might serve as a metaphor for the psychoanalytic movement itself. The force of Freud's personality and ideas had engendered a cult of personality in which Freud, as guru, had demanded complete personal and professional loyalty. In bestowing the rings on the members of the committee, he hoped to become their ringmaster, exerting absolute control over them. The subtext of psychoanalytic history is the story of how Freud manipulated and influenced his followers and successors. Their general passivity caused them to remain enthralled to interminable analysis, and God knows what they all told Freud during their own analysis by mm-hmm. him, which he knew about them and had to hold over them. So, I mean, that, I mean, it sounds like, you know, kind of a, uh, Very, um, like Scientology. A, well, Scientology or Skull and Bones, you know, that sort of thing. By insisting that the committee must be absolutely secret, Freud enshrined the principle of confidentiality. The various psychoanalytic societies that emerged from the committee were like communist cells in which the members vowed eternal obedience to their leader. Psychoanalysis became institutionalized by the founding of journals and the training of candidates. And, of course, the training consisted of being psychoanalyzed by the leader of your cell. In short, it was an extraordinarily effective political entity. Great leaders may be venerated or idolized, but the cult of leadership demands that they be remote. Freud was just such a leader. The early psychoanalysis movement took the form of an extended family whose origin was the idealized family of the committee. It was a male family only of sons led by a patriarchal father, but conspicuous conspicuous in its lack of a nurturing mother. Undoubtedly, Freud's own early family life, a cold, strong mother, a shadowy father, and four younger sisters to whom he felt superior, explains something about the dynamic of his self-created family, the committee. Freud was a withholding parent whose adopted children hungered for his attention. Quarreling amongst themselves in their rivalry for Freud's attention, the members of the committee were bound even more closely to him. Freud ultimately chose as his successor his own daughter, Anna, who had a will as strong as his own and who possessed the same agile political instincts. For years, she operated as the palace guard. Mm-hmm. So that's how they created their cult. And, they, and of course, with the nephew, Bernays, they propagated this cult uh, and have poisoned the minds of, you know, multiplied millions of members of the human family for many, many years, not to mention providing tools to the ruling elite mm-hmm. of ways to control or to dominate people. Yeah. Well, on I mean, a massive scale. On, on that topic, right, Ernest Gellner um, wrote a book called The Culture of Unreason, the Psychoanalytic Movement, where he talks about how it basically was a cult. And uh, he makes this point about how religion is based on this concept of a priori information, that you get sort of information from an outside source, and this is what makes religion unacceptable, scientifically speaking. And that he, he points out that psychoanalysis is basically that in order for a person to become healthy, they have to be psychoanalyzed. 
Um, but Freud wasn't psychoanalyzed. He created psychoanalysis. He analyzed himself. He, he was an- self-created. He was self-created. He was the only one who was able to do this. And the basic idea is that you know he was like one in a million. Only one in a million people, or something like that, could ever do it to themselves. Everyone else had to be psychoanalyzed by him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is basically sort of a religious initiation. He mm-hmm. initiated them into a mystery cult, the the psychoanalytic mysteries. And uh, in that kind of sense, you know, psychoanalysis really is a cult, and he was the charismatic uh, leader who received his psychoanalytic information, his this 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 therapeutic technique, uh, read i.e. religion, uh, from uh, an a priori source that came into him, and he became the avatar for the psychoanalysis god, and then therefore initiated the rest of his high priests or ring bearers or whatever it is with this sort of thing. Yeah. In the beginning was the word, and the word was Freud's. It's like fiat lux. Exactly. I mean, it's there are other authors as well who've written about psychoanalysis as a cult. Um, I won't read this out, but there's a title of a paper in front of me by Kevin MacDonald. Freud's Follies, Psychoanalysis as Religion, Cult, and Political Movement. Um, so there is a growing awareness and there has been for some time in parallel uh, to the proliferation of Freud's ideas that there's something seriously wrong at the heart of it. However, its dominance has continued to this day. Um, Before we get to some modern-day examples, though, another name that springs to mind, I don't think he was directly a disciple of Freud's, but he had also a tremendous effect um, a few decades later. His name was Alfred Kinsey. The famous Kinsey reports on the sexual behavior, so to speak, mm-hmm. of Americans. Uh, this was incredibly pathological, to say the least. This guy uh, presented two reports, one on the sexual behaviors of American males and then later on females, in which he says, based on empirical data, he claims to have collected that X percentage of Americans are involved in all kinds of deviant behavior, and it became the founding principle in which uh, sex education and Freudian ideas about uh, the infantile sexual behavior that dominates a, whole, a person's whole life proliferated, thanks to Kinsey, which was like I said, based on Freud's original work. So I would just like to clarify how this man got his empirical evidence. <laughs> Basically, what the guy would do would he would take he looked under his college men, young college boys and girls up to his attic and film him and his wife having sex with them. This is the source of that information. I would not. Oh my god, I I can't even. And and he this guy's considered the father of the sexual revolution. Yeah. Again, we see that he probably was. <laughs> again, we see that um, someone's ideas get out there and mass proliferate, uh, where there's no scientific merit for them to do so, mm-hmm. but they become dominant um, ideologies that then shape and dictate policy. Uh, I mean, if you. Kinsey, Kinsey, in a very Freudian way, he said that children are 
quote, 100% orgasmic. He said incest is good for children. He didn't say it directly, but he was implying that. And he came up with statistics to prove these a priori statements um, that, of course, shocked the country when they first heard them. Um, And you do wonder to what extent uh, people like Kinsey, by projecting their inner landscape and their behavior on the country, and then influence and then bring about the reality, say, of increased incestuous behavior and child abuse and so yeah, on. Yeah, and, and vice versa, I would say. Now, you might get one of the explanations why in France the Freudian movement is so strong. Freudian movement via the Freud's French lieutenant Lacan. In France, it's almost impossible to find a psychiatrist, a psychologist that is not Freudian. Those theories had a big success in this country. At the same time, when you check some surveys, you learn that more than 50% of French children have experienced incest. So you start to wonder, beyond your your reasoning about uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, with this statistic in mind, you realize that some people would be very interesting in seeing the population adopting the Freudian ideas because this way their guilty behavior, their pedophilic behaviors would be legitimized, maybe legalized, thanks to the widespread adoption of the Freudian ideas. For the perpetrators of such acts, adopting Freudian ideas is an excellent solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Lobachevsky talks about this, the use of ideologies as a Trojan horse in, in order to introduce into society the revolution that psychopaths wish to see. When people in general think of a revolution, they think of a mass improvement for most people. Psychopaths have a very different goal in mind. And they, they latch on to these ideas because, oh, here's something that can help us create a world that would suit us. And Freud, Kinsey's ideas were godsends to seeing a world in which their behavior would be acceptable, in which they could would be adopted by... Well, a lot of Freud's theories kind of center around this concept of, of uh, problem of neurotic and, and hysterical problems and people being uh, brought about by their alienation from society that they felt alienated. And I think that that was, again, his projection because he, as a, I'm fairly sure that he, he sounds very psychopathic, did obviously feel alienated, and they, and they do feel alienated. So he had to normalize he his normalized. own internal sickness right. in order to feel less alienated from society. Right, right. He wanted to, you know, everybody had it, everybody was doing it, everybody was thinking it, they just weren't admitting it. It was repressed, or it was, you know, projected, or it was, you know... Well, uh, we heard that kind of stuff before, though. I mean, everybody's doing it. You know, it's okay. There's another negative uh, consequence of this Freudian movement. Uh, like the Catholic Church, the Freudian movement created a hierarchy and basically created two classes. The initiated ones and the profane ones, the non-initiated ones. The initiated ones being the practitioners, non-initiated ones being the patients. And so there was 
it ingrained in people's mind this uh, hierarchy and at the same time it planted the seed of a deep guilt and deep shame in individuals because they had all those dirty unconscious thoughts and uh, it shaped consciously or unconsciously the behavior of generations of patients towards the therapist and the behavior of thousands of uh, therapists towards the patient. The submission that the patient exhibits and this uh, control, this power that the therapist exerts on the patient. And there's an excerpt here trying to explain why electroshocks are being practiced. Electroshocks have been practiced for decades in the old world. Millions of people have gone to electroshock that is basically torture, but on the contrary to torture, in addition, you pay or your insurance company pays the one who tortures you. So it's even worse than torture. So here you read, here I read, the rationale for electroshock was formally couched in psychoanalytic terms, <clears throat> excuse me, with punitive super egos, sometimes requiring repeated shocks of 110 volts for appeasement. Only then could guilt be assuaged and discontent be relieved. Dude, that's so sick. <laughs> Somebody should have put them down when oh they God, were. <laughs> dude. I mean, seriously, how is that not akin to like flagellating yourself or something? I have to submit to flesh, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's, that's, it's still the same kind of Christian, Christian doctrine of sublimating the flesh, punishing it uh, for, 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 for guilt and original sin, you know? And uh, what I was going to point out, though, is what you said about science. Science uh, entirely, not just psychology, not just psychiatry, they create a priesthood that we're supposed to follow, a hierarchy of you know uh, different academics at different levels, uh, tenured professors, professor emeritus, habilitated you know Nobel laureate, all these different types of things. So they have this this hierarchy of scientific priests with, you know, kind of like Richard Dawkins is kind of like the Pope, you know, um, and they, they, they mimic the exact structure in, in a certain way. They have a, a, a very well-organized structure of, of vetting and training, and they have their own uniforms. And Okay. Talking about Nobel Prize, I cannot uh, skip this information. The father of lobotomy, who is a, a neurologist, Portuguese neurologist who lived in the beginning of 20th century. It's called Moniz. He started to perform lobotomies. It's very consistent with his materialistic, exclusively materialistic paradigm or vision of human being. As animals. As animals, as a machine, you know. And the brain being a complicated wheels and a complicated machinery, nothing else. Purely tangible, purely material. So following this uh, materialistic approach, he developed a theory that by cutting some connection, removing the bad tissues in the brain, the mental illnesses will be cured. So he started to perform lobotomy, this Maurice guy. Um, first, he was opening the skull and injecting ethanol directly in the uh, targeted areas, prefrontal, where the personality is. Where e the ethanol, like is in pure alcohol. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And um, then they experimented the insertion of radioactive rods in the target area, prefrontal cortex. And then they came with a um, kind of pics 
mechanical uh, but that was that was the guy Moniz originally had the idea of cutting open and then basically destroying the prefrontal cortex with with alcohol but then there was an American doctor uh, Walter Freeman, Freeman who came along and he basically used an ice pick that he shoved up under your eye in through your eye up into the front of your brain rubbed it around you know scraped around a few times until he was happy that he figured he had just destroyed the front of your brain and then pulled that out and said off you go and he had this guy had a lobotomobile that he traveled around the US in this is in the 1930s People would just come along with a referral. It wasn't the Batmobile. No, with a referral from the doctor, and you could just go into his lobotomobile, and he'd stick a pick up through your eye, and and this was all basically he was a neurophys a neuropsychiatrist, and it was all psychiatry based. I, I just finished with Maurice. Indeed, you're right. Freeman mm -hmm. was the one of the successors or the the American uh, disciple of yeah. uh, Maurice. But Maurice uh, Moniz got the Nobel Prize of Medicine in 1949. Yeah. For inventing lobotomy? Yep, exactly. For inventing lobotomy? Cut and open your head and pour an alcohol in. I mean, it's... This, it's, is, the, this is the legacy. This it's is only, freaking it's science? Only, it's only this 70 years ago. This is about. This is what it's based on. This is our... Did, I, yeah. You know, it makes you wonder, did somebody get a Nobel Prize for inventing thalidomide? I mean, here, here's the price. thing. Here's the thing that always gets me. This is gets my go. No matter all of the good things that Mother Teresa did, she is never going to be able to make up for Torquemada. That's the basic thing that everyone goes around talking about. Whenever anyone wants to talk about Catholicism, it's pedophile boys and the Inquisition. Mother They're Teresa. not going to live it down. Mother Teresa was a charlatan anyway. <laughs> well, she probably was. No, anyway. she was. But, you know, I, I don't care. It doesn't matter what good deeds they do, right? They still can't live down the horrible stuff that they did. And people take them to task for it. Whenever the Catholic Church comes along and says, hey, wait a minute, we're trying to do good now. Everyone says, what about all the little boys you touched, and what about that Inquisition? What was that all about anyway, right? And, and everybody's okay with this. Everyone's completely comfortable with this. But w if you take the same tack with science, people look at you like you're crazy, and it's just like, yeah, but I mean, I, I, don't, I don't care how many cell phones uh, they make. You know, I don't care how many respirator machines they make. Uh, why don't we, let's talk over here about Nagasaki. Let's talk about all of the, let's talk about Hiroshima. the automobile. Let's talk about Hiroshima. Uh, you know, let's talk about predator drones. Well, the let's thing talk is, about all the things that science has contributed that have killed uh, multiplied millions, millions and multiplied millions, millions people. of people. More people than were ever killed in the entire history of the Catholic Church have been killed in the 20th century by science. By science, more people than the Catholic Church ever managed to kill. I mean, they were going around slaughtering people with the sword. That takes a lot of work. They were actively going around killing people and saying it was good for God, and they still couldn't top what a scientist in a lab does. With a couple of numbers and a calculator, he builds a bomb that kills millions at once. At once. I mean, the evil that has been done by science far outweighs all of the good that has been done by it at the end of the day. And the, the evil wasn't necessary. That's the thing that they, they, they trick you. They make you think that it's the price you pay. It's the price you pay for your, your heart and lung machines at the hospital and all your the antibiotics. all your antibiotics. You know, that TV that you like, your car, your computer. They're like, look at all the good things we did. Yeah, there's a couple of other things over here, but you know what? Look at what you're getting in return. And the thing is, is the price is not that. We don't have to have those things. We have those things because we let these little psychopath bastards yeah. run amok, and they, well, they've sold us down the river for 30 pieces of silver. So let's make a deal. You know, Let's say we'll give back the cars and the modern conveniences if you just stop lobotomizing us, or if you, you know, figuratively maybe today, but if you, if you stop plying our children full of Ritalin because they have uh, the latest DSM has um, conduct disorder.
Yeah, they're acting conduct. like normal children, and that means they have conduct disorder. Adolescent rebellion I'd disorder. I'd be worried about a kid. It's a disorder. You know, your, your, your adolescent is being rebellious. Who is it? Film full of Redland. That it's the it's the sign of sick. It's a sign of uh, mental health to not be adjusted. Oh, that was oh. Uh, Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti said that, and then um, yeah, there's no measure of mental health. King, to be. one of my oh, favorite, yeah. Martin Luther King, said that they have this word bending around mouth. Oops, sorry. Carry on. Do you have it? No, carry on. And and he talks about you know I'm glad to be maladjusted. I'm glad that I'll never adjust myself to racial bigotry. I'm glad I'll never. You know, adjust myself to all this different stuff, e- economic slavery, you know, things like that. And and that's the thing, you know, I mean, it's it's a child is sick when he does what the teacher tells him to do because the teacher is messed up. Uh-huh. And there might be some social engineering going on here because one of the main target of psychiatry and psychology is depression. Today, hundreds of millions of people around the world are suffering officially from depression is considered as a disease. A disease means you're too much away from the norm. And the norm, of course, is defined unilaterally by some... Uh, the golden mean. Some office or some uh, uh, obscure administrative bodies. Uh, it has now, a term. It's called the golden mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, now, we can wonder if in the current world, if you see the world as it is, objectively isn't a relative depression a normal emotional reaction to what is going on and to what you see. In other words, if you're not depressed, you're not normal. Yeah, but if you go deeper than that, it's maybe the ones who are not depressed who are not normal. These are the ones who should be committed. It's the ones who are part of the happy cult that should go to psychiatric world and and be treated. I mean, if a person lives in, in the modern world and thinks that it's a great place or even a decent place, they're seriously messed up. That person needs help. Uh, they need shock therapy. <laughs> Look, uh, Rosemary Kennedy, the very own sister of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, she was lobotomized. In the lobotomobile. By uh, Freeman. By Freeman, yeah. By Freeman. And, uh, is that true? It, it is. Yeah. True. Oh, my God. And uh, the story is that she was uh, mentally retarded. Uh, well, it's not true. So, because so sticking so, holes in her brain was the way to solve this? Some... Yeah, it doesn't solve it. It reduces, it's been statistically and uh, scientifically proved. It reduces IQ. Of course, you induce brain damage. Um, this being said, experts have stated that Rosemary Kennedy was maybe not very bright, but the reason why her father committed her to lobotomy is because she was rebellious. Yeah. And after lobotomy, she was totally compliant. But she was a compliant legume. She was a not legume, a by the way, human being. For you non-French speakers, a legume means in French a vegetable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was a compliant <laughs> vegetable. <laughs> she was a vegetable. <laughs> exactly. All this talk of lobotomies and alcohol on the brain. Is it making you want to drink? It reminds <laughs> you of a joke, doesn't it? Yeah. I think I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. I have one. What what does one neuro neurosurgeon say to the other? Oh, if you don't lobotomy me, I won't lobotomy you. <laughs> this is the, this is worse than like operating. Well, you got to make a joke about it because it's so horrifying yeah. that you just can't believe that this is the reality we live in, people. 
But this is the world, and they are trying to make us accept this as normal. And if you accept this as freaking normal, you need you sick fuck. <laughs> yeah, you need you need something. Maybe we should talk a little bit to to raise our mood and talk about something more positive. All about right, prescription All right. drugs in psychiatry. Well, neuroleptics. Yeah. Carry on. Today. You have in the U.S. In the U.S., I think it's 40 million people who are diagnosed with mental illness, and a lot of them end up having prescription drugs, like in uh, 40 million. Stop a second. There's what 350 million people in the U.S. or 300 million? Less, yeah. Which which is it? I think it's about 300 million. So 40 million is what percent of that? About million? one quarter. One seventh. Or one seventh. Yeah. One seventh of the entire. So that means one in every seven people you meet is Crazy. one. Of, is one of these people. And on drugs. According to the DSM. If you know 14 people, you know two of them. Well, the the, the thing is, that's officially according to exactly. their criteria for it. The reality, I think it was Martha Stout who wrote about this, the reality is that as a result of all these efforts to make people happy by applying these outdated, barbaric psychological theories and practices, the rate's probably more like 85 to 90% of people who've got issues. I was going to say, think about how many people are on drugs. I mean, what do you think MDMA is about? I mean, come on. That kind of stuff is to make people happy. It's because life sucks. I mean, mm -hmm. what about all the people smoking pot, doing coke, Viking, and all these other things? I mean, people who aren't necessarily diagnosed with a, a diagnosed and prescribed some sort of medication for a mental disorder uh, are probably self-medicating with some sort of illegal substance. Well, they don't want them smoking pot because, of course, you know, you can grow your own pot. They want they want to keep that illegal so that they can prescribe oh. them pharmaceuticals <clears throat> that have to be paid for and they can make billions of dollars. Which are sometimes actually made from pot. <laughs> yeah, so leave, leaving aside, I mean, obviously, through the misuse and misdiagnosis in psychiatry, there are many people today on drugs that are being pushed on them by big pharma through psych through psychiatrists uh, who know nothing really about uh, about the human human mental illness, if any. Um, <clears throat> they um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say. You're uh, not allowed to forget what you're going to say when you're talking on the radio, Joe. I'm not. You're fired. Get out. Uh, we're well, going to call a psychiatrist to solve your so, memory so, problems. Remember, you need a neuroleptic. Get this man some drugs. Some I think I have memory disorder. I need some Ritalin. It'll help me. Somebody uh, get the ice pack. Turn, turn me into a, a, lot of a forgetful <laughs> zombie. Here, pull to the bottom of the hill. <laughs> okay. Don't move, Joe. He, won't be, he will be painless. <laughs> um, yeah. So, psychiatry and all of the drugs that they're pushing on people today... Yeah, that's all I was going to say. Oh, well, okay. Carry on, Neil. I have a couple of personal stories about experiences with... Yeah, that's what I was going to say. ...prescribed medication. When I was 14, <clears throat> I uh, had severe acne, like many 14-year-olds do. And my mom took me to a dermatologist. And within a couple of weeks, I was on a heavy prescription for Rewakatine. Of course, I've since learned that Roaccutane is a serious... What is that called? <laughs> Roaccutane. It sounds like Roaccutane. You know, it makes you wacky. 
Roaccutane. Now, it's it's prescribed as something for a physical ailment, namely your skin, but it's actually extremely close to it. It's essentially one of these antidepressants. It's an SSRI slightly adjusted for the dermatology market. It's really uh, an antidepressant. It's really a mind-altering drug. Were you a happy guy? Uh, No. I went from being a bit of a crazy teenager to a seriously, seriously much more crazy teenager as a direct result of this. And, of course, I've since learned if you read the small print on these packages for these pills, you know, side effects, maybe psychosis and uh, suicide. Mm-hmm. You're lucky. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have some personal stories, too. My, can, we, can you hold your personal stories for a minute? We've got a call. I don't want to keep them waiting too long. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Shane from New York. Hey, Shane. Hi, hey, everybody. Um, yeah, I just I just wanted to comment. Um, you know, I, I was just thinking how ironic uh, it is that uh, psychology, psychology and psychiatry, you know, do have this uh, materialistic uh, basis, but you know, they they miss, they completely miss the physical aspect that can actually help people, um, which is diet and. I, I know, um, like with my own experience, um, using diet to, you know, clear up a lot of uh, cognitive stuff has has been way more effective than, you know, anything um, relating to... When you to, say diet, what do you mean specifically? Um, well, mostly getting rid of the uh, gluten, dairy, sugar, uh, carbs. And uh, going, you know, basically on the the paleo uh, ketogenic diet. So this uh, has really helped you clear up uh, cognitive issues. What kind of cognitive issues? Well, years ago, um, I was um, I I went to a a psychologist to uh, I was trying to sort out some uh, some ADD type (laughs) things, and I, I just had you know very uh, foggy thinking, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to hold a coherent thought. It was very um, just divided <clears throat> in my mind, and it, it would come across a lot in just you know my uh, everyday behavior and, and, and thoughts. So I remember I, I went to him, the to see the psychologist, and he was all uh, about you know prescribing me some medications. He said, "Oh, it's great, you know." get on this Ritalin stuff and, you know, you'll you'll be brand new. And um, that was the last time I saw him. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I figured, um, you know, there's there's got to be another way. And uh, that's when I, I started to look into diet. And at the time, I don't think the paleo stuff was around yet. And um, although the gluten-free, casein-free was di- uh, diet was, pretty popular um with the particularly with the autistic autistic community and i guess like a it was also being promoted for anybody who suffered from you know uh, symptoms of ADD i didn't have the hypertension stuff just the inattentive and so i tried that and it was helpful uh a lot but you know it it didn't completely you know get rid of everything um it wasn't until probably a couple of months later uh, I had, you know, been 
reading your forum, and um, you guys picked up on a lot of the, the anti-inflammatory uh, foods and um, or getting rid of inflammatory foods, um, which is the gluten and and you know all the uh, really looking at like the vegetables and stuff, and you know it was amazing um, just to that being um, both pain-free. I mean, it, it, it didn't just relate to, you know, what was going on in my mind, but, you know, it translated into a lot of different areas of, of health. Um, and yeah, it, was, it was just remarkable, you know. And uh, yeah. what is true, Shane, is that uh, one commonly held belief is that because of the blood-brain barrier, the BBB, the brain is immune to any food you take. It's separated, totally separated. It is not true. The blood-brain barrier is permeable to many substances, in particular small molecules, peptides, small proteins, some lectins, some pseudopurides, like uh, what you find in uh, um, some of the wheat and dairy. Wheat and dairy, for example. And uh, by stopping eating those kind of food, you definitely reduce the inflammation in your brain and you uh, put your brain in a more normal context with the proper nutrients and the proper environment to uh, function properly. Yeah, yeah and, um, and, and all the connections too with um, the, the brain and the gut. I, I just found you know pretty fascinating um, just how that the gut can yeah. act as kind of a second brain. Yeah, so again, like based we we talked about this last week and um and it's basically the nexus of a big agribusiness providing all of these uh, toxic and inflammatory foods to people that they then go to their psychiatrist or the doctor for if it's a men- if it's causing them mental problems or physical problems they go to the doctor or the psychiatrist who prescribes some kind of pills from big pharma who then get rich from that and that and those pills then essentially zombify people in a lot of cases for all which these diseases. Which makes them easier to control. Which makes the government happy. So it's you have just a nexus. wonderful circular uh, system. Yeah, they'll have it tight, locked up, you know, tied well, I mean, down. The funny and thing is that the companies are owned by all the same person. Yeah, right? and they've got the same revolve. companies who own the drugs and the food and well, supply the medical school with money. Well, so when, it's very curious. Yeah, well, when you say big, when you say government and then big pharma and big agribusiness, you've got a bunch of people all just revolving around in through those. Uh, the same families, the same money. Yeah, anyway, Shane, thanks for your call. We're going to go to another call here, okay? All right, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Shane. Thanks. Take it easy. Thanks, bro. Bye, Shane. Thanks. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Um, My name is Jamar. I'm calling from Tacoma. Hi, Jamar. Welcome to the show. Uh, I'm sorry. I I don't want to veer off topic, but I I kind of really just talked because I just got off work and I've always been a follower of you guys' work. I appreciate you guys a lot. I just want to tell you like what you're really doing, like it motivates me and I go through things in my life and you know, I really appreciate everything you guys do and Laura and everything and like <clears throat> like just for example, I just got this new book called Operators and Things. That's a great one. Yeah. Scary too, huh? Oh dude, I love that book yeah. so much because it is like ponerology for dummies but with all the different words. Like, she doesn't use the word psychopath, but she's basically yeah. talking about the same thing. Yeah, it kind of scares me a little bit because, like, cryptographic over- overlords <laughs> and things like that, I think about it in many different ways. But 
I don't know. I'm just calling because I just appreciate you guys a lot. And it keep Thank me, you. Keep me going. We appreciate really you guys. We Thank you, Shama. Thank you. Big hugs and kisses. Yeah. Thank Thank you, Laura. So that's all I wanted to say, really. That's it. Right. Thank uh, you. Thank you, guys. Take care, man. Okay. All right. You too. He's a nice kid. All right. So, uh, getting back to our topic, we still have some time to go to to get on here. What I was actually, what I, do you want to say something? Because yeah, I know what I, I was going to say. What What were you going to say? Well, it led into some uh, kind of a, a bit of a history of it in a way. It was the idea that today you have all these people who are maladjusted to society, and as Jason was saying, uh, according to well, I was going to say something positive. Okay, carry on. Positive well, if you, you want to, if you no, want. I'll, you do positive. Do positive. Okay, do positive. I, I want to point out that there is a great book out there. Uh, it's called, um, it's by Timothy Wilson, I believe, and it's called Strangers to Ourselves by Timothy D. Wilson. And he also wrote another book who, uh, called Redirect, which is about how to deal with some of your issues. Anyway, um, <clears throat> And I'm going to read you just a little bit from it. And he says, It might seem that self-knowledge is a central topic in psychology. In some ways it is. From Freud onward, psychologists have been fascinated by the extent to which people know themselves, the limits of this knowledge, and the consequence of failures of self-insight. Surprisingly, however, self-knowledge has not been a mainstream topic in academic psychology. There are few college courses on self-knowledge and few books devoted to the topic, if we rule out self-help books and ones from a psychoanalytic point of view. But in recent years, there's been an explosion of scientific research on self-knowledge that paints a different portrait from the one presented by Freud and his followers. People do possess a powerful, sophisticated, adaptive unconscious that is crucial for survival in the world. Because this unconscious operates so efficiently out of view, however, and is largely inaccessible, there is a price to pay in self-knowledge. There is a great deal about ourselves that we cannot know directly, even with the most painstaking introspection. How, then, can we discover our non-conscious traits, goals, and feelings? Is it always to our advantage to do so? To what extent are researchers in academia rediscovering Freud and psychoanalysis? How can self-knowledge be studied scientifically? These are questions to which I turn in the following pages. And then he talks about Freud and gets to the point where he says that... um, There are undoubtedly many reasons for a lack of self-insight. People may be blinded by their hubris, a favorite Greek and Shakespearean theme, confused, or simply never take the time to examine their own lives and psyche very carefully. The reason that I will address perhaps the most common of all is that much of what we want to know about ourselves resides outside of conscious awareness. The idea that a large portion of the human mind is unconscious is not new and was Freud's greatest insight. So we got to say something about Freud that's positive. The idea that most of what goes on inside our minds and in our behaviors and our actions and interactions with other people and our reactions and so forth, you know, is unconscious. It's driven by a lot of instinctual uh, processes. So he says... <clears throat> 
Modern psychology owes Freud a large debt for his willingness to look beyond the narrow corridor of consciousness. But a revolution has occurred in empirical psychology concerning the nature of the unconscious, however, that has revealed the limits of the Freudian conception. Initially, research psychologists were skittish about even mentioning non-conscious mental processes. In the first half of the 20th century, the behaviorist onslaught in psychology was fueled by a rejection of mentalism. Behaviorists argued that there was no need to take into account what occurred inside people's heads, consciously or unconsciously. In the late 1950s, mainstream psychology took the giant step of rejecting behaviorism and initiating the systematic study of the mind. But the first experimental psychologist to leap off the behaviorism bandwagon said little about whether those aspects of the mind they were studying were conscious or unconscious. This was a taboo question. Few psychologists wanted to jeopardize the newfound respectability of the mind as a scientific topic by saying, hey, not only can we study what people are thinking, we can study what goes on inside their heads that even they can't see. In the psychological laboratories of academia, few self-respecting psychologists wanted to risk the accusation that they were, God forbid, Freudians. Do we have another caller? We do. Hang on. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, this is Erica. I'm calling from Hawaii. Hi, Erica. Hawaii. Hello. Aloha. So great to hear you folks. I just wanted to call and say thank you so much for sharing this topic. If it weren't for all the work you've done, um, my family would have fallen into that psychiatry hole. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I just wanted to say... um, that I really appreciate your show every Sunday. We look forward to it. And um, I wanted to just ask if you could comment just a little bit on this drugging of American children and maybe children around the world. Okay. We can do that. Okay. Take it away, Joe. <coughs> do you want to stay on the line or do you want to? Um, sure. Well, I just I just bring this up because I, I've gone through this personally and um, just as kind of a, a – topic to bring up is this um, new diagnosis that they call ODD, O-D-D, Oppositional O-D-D. Defiant Disorder. So wow, if you guys yeah, want to that... take it away, I will listen. Um, my daughter okay. was diagnosed with it, but we never gave her meds. And we uh-huh. didn't do... Hold on a second. You, you had a professional doctor. You paid a, a, a doctor <laughs> to tell you that your child was odd? Well, it was actually <laughs> three different psychiatrists, and it was... that guy? <laughs> I mean, just right upside the head. I mean, if somebody called my child odd, I'd be like, what you think? Well, yeah. luckily, because of all the information you folks provide, I was able to keep my daughter off of drugs. But it was a long, drawn-out battle. And I had four different psychiatrists give the same diagnosis. And then three different psychologists back that up. So, Did you um, grow out of it? Yes. Thanks mm. to that the... Happened. Yep. yep. The Erica, breathing and the diet yeah. and just a lifestyle change, she's made mm-hmm. tremendous turnaround. So I just wanted to say thank you. Okay. Thank you. Kissy, thank kissy. you. I will keep listening. Aloha. 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 
Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what I just mentioned earlier on. There's conduct, she said, opposition of defiant disorder. Yeah, that's a new that, one, that, yeah. But that seems to be similar to adolescent rebellion disorder. Surely yeah, well, that would yeah, be similar. It, it's pretty much the same. And a more general one is conduct disorder. Yeah. I mean, who if doesn't If you don't conduct that? yourself the way the powers that be want you to conduct yourself, then you have a disorder. Right. Well, the thing about it is, is that people have to remember that in these kind of mental health disorders that psychiatrists dole out uh, to a penny, None of them are scientifically based, i.e. there are no diagnostic tests to determine whether or not someone has any of those. You can't prove it's it. It's an opinion. It's an it, opinion, like we were saying earlier didn't on. Didn't anybody ever read, for crying all night, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn? You know, That's the problem. The, the thing is, is it's kind of like what Malcolm Reynolds said from Serenity. There's just no place for naughtiness anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, kids... When you're a teenager, man, you, you get in fights, you know, you do stuff that you're really not supposed to do, and that's what it's all about. When I was a kid, you know, we used to get into fights. Now I read in the news, they expel you if you even look at somebody cross-eyed. Yeah. And it's just mind-bogglingly insane. And the thing is, okay, some parents have it worse Well, I don't others. approve of getting in fights. Yeah, but, you know, but you can't stop it. I got into fights. What, are you, what, are you going to send me to jail? Are you okay. Gonna, no, you're yeah. grounded. You're in trouble. Put me in the electric chair? Yeah. I we punched got, people in the face. It was fun at the it's, time. It's part of parenting. And some no, but you don't get any dessert tonight. Okay. Okay. We got another call here, That's so I'm going to go with this one. You don't put them on Hi, hi caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Betsy. I'm calling hi, Betsy. from North Carolina. Hello. From North hey, Carolina. Betsy. I'm just enjoying your radio show again, and okay. I wanted to bring up how psychiatry is now used as a political tool against dissidents. I mean, it always has to a certain degree, but it seems to have gotten really insane lately. Anyone who disagrees with what our government doing is doing has some type of mental disorder. Yeah, and Neely Neil Bob a has point. a case on that, too, I think. Where, where? Yeah, but you go ahead. Tell us what, what your experience of it. Well, I mean, it's it's not so much my personal experience is that I'm watching every activist I know, <coughs> excuse me, labeled with some kind of disorder. Um, it, 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 there were examples of it on SOT recently, um, the, the names that they are giving these, these different so-called disorders. And then, of course, now the psychiatric community is going to back it up. And I'm wondering how far we are from the courts mandating these mental drugs. Um, it's it, it's already being done with people that are, say, schizophrenic or or somehow violent. You know, they they're they're the courts are already ordering that these people take these drugs as ordered by their doctors. Their their free will is taken away from them. They absolutely have to take these drugs if unless they want to go to prison. Well, they're saying that any anybody who thinks that there is a conspiracy in the government, you know, yeah. has got some kind of disorder, they're mentally ill. If you think that 9/11 was an inside job, you've got some kind of disorder, you need to be locked up and medicated. Um, exactly. You know, and, and the list just goes on on that sort of thing. There's going to be an anti-patriotic disorder soon. I think there already is. I think there already is. Yeah. Well, several years ago, 2006, a journalist in New Zealand was approached by two social workers in her home, abducted, and committed to uh, a psychiatric unit in a hospital where she was drugged because she had written, well, they did not obviously directly link this, but she had written articles in a magazine called Uncensored in New Zealand in which she outlined the case that 
criminal element within the U.S. administration had been responsible or involved in 9-11. And she had to fight hard to get out of there, as you can imagine. So we see this in New Zealand, as far away as you can get from the U.S. And what if about someone's the, political beliefs, a dissident is locked up. What about the members of the psychiatric or the psychological uh, expert community that were involved in supervising torture uh, implemented by the Bush administration and now the Obama administration. I mean, wh- wh- what can you say about a psychologist or a psychiatrist who actually actively would participate in something that is so morally reprehensible that they themselves ought to be subjected to the very things that they are allowing or prescribing or saying, oh, that's not over the line. Well, don't, don't, clearly- don't we have a clip from, from uh, evidence or revision of that interrogation by... Uh, you know, for the interrogation of Sandy Serrano. Bulk address. Serrano, Serrano? Sandy yeah. Serrano. Uh, no, we don't. But uh, what I would say about people who do that, psych- psychiatrists who do that, who engage in, in kind of rubber stamping torture, um, I would say that they have sold their souls. But if they have a soul, they clearly don't have one when they're doing that. So what have they sold? Nothing. So that's why they can do it. They don't have anything to lose. So if you if you read any list of names of any psychiatrist or psychologist who has been involved in or approved of or has not protested against that sort of behavior, you know, let, let me go biblical on you here. Those people have taken the mark of the beast. And it's happening in our prisons, too. If, if Say you want to go and protest the war. Um, you're arrested, you're put in jail, and you're fed drug food. And it's already been established in the court in the U.S. that these prisons are allowed to drug the prisoners' food with calming agents without telling them what's in it, without telling them how much is in their food. So, you know, I mean, if you're drugging mm-hmm. a mass amount of cafeteria line food, you know, who's getting what dose is dependent upon who eats what. So there's, no, yeah. there's not even any supervision of who is getting what drug. But they've acknowledged that, yes, we drug prisoners keep them calm. To keep Not them to mention the fluoride that they put in the water to keep the masses calm and dumb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're if you an activist now and you get arrested, you can pretty much count on the fact you're going to be drugged without, you know, without any due process. You haven't been convicted of anything yet. You've just been held in jail. They put a bond on you that maybe your friends need a while to raise or whatever. <laughs> but even while you're waiting for your trial, you are given psychoactive drugs without your permission, with I mean, without even being you know, informed of what you're being fed. They don't have to tell you what's in their food. It's, believe it or not, it's been ruled as a um, corporate uh, secret, a, 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 something that's proprietary. And they're using those proprietary corporate proprietary laws in these private prisons <laughs> not to reveal what? how they keep the prisoners calm. It's the same as the fracking issue. You know, they, they don't have to tell us what they're putting in our groundwater because that's a proprietary secret. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if your wellhead explodes off, you know it's still a proprietary secret. So they're I mean, getting the away with doing, putting all kinds of chemicals into people who haven't even been convicted of a crime yet. Of course, well, by I mean, the, the time you get show court, dedicated to the to the the prison system. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you talk about the military industrial complex. The the prison system is a huge cash hungry cow. It's multi billion dollar industry, and these guys have their own lobbyists. They want stricter laws. They want more people in their jails. Mm. They get money for it. There are 
unions of prison guards that march against the repealing of laws because they don't they want more people in the jails. Mm-hmm. And I, an entire show could be done just on the. And the, the United States has more people in prison than any other country on the planet. Yeah, we got to call, call her. In apartheid South Africa. All right, Betsy. Thanks for your call. Kissy, kissy. Thank you, Betsy. Nice talking Bye-bye. to y'all. Right, take care. Good night. Bye-bye. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, this is Tiffany from Ohio. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. How are you doing? Hello. We Good, remember I'm doing great. We're waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really enjoying the show today. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, because you were talking about lobotomies. Mm-hmm. Um they're not doing lobotomies now, but it's more like a chemical lobotomy. Yeah. And the the side effects of the drugs, all the antipsychotics and antidepressants that they're giving people. Tiffany, it, Tiffany, real quick, let the other listeners know uh, what your profession is. Oh, I'm I'm a, a psychiatric nurse. Okay, and carry I, on. I've worked. Okay. Um, uh, so I was talking about the um, the side effects of the drugs particularly uh, the uh, newer antipsychotics like Risperdal and Seroquel and uh, drugs like that that cause metabolic syndrome and diabetes and uh, something called tardive dyskinesia, which is involuntary movement of the extremities and the face and the mouth, which is not reversible, Um, like Parkinsonian-type symptoms, weight gain. I saw a lady that was in the hospital where I used to work she was there for about eight weeks, and she put on, like, 25 pounds, and she wasn't even on the drug for the entire eight weeks. Um, sexual side effects, and what I've noticed is that um, people, it's like they lose their mojo. They they have very flat expressions. Yeah. They can't find words. It's, it's really sad to see, and, like, in other countries, if someone has a psychotic break, it's usually seen as a one-off thing, but here... If you have a psychotic break for whatever reason, it's like a sentence to spend your life on all these horrible drugs. Just one point. Um, lobotomy is still performed in the U.S. and many other countries. They just changed the, oh, really? the name, the wording. Yeah, It's now called psychosurgery. In the U.S., the Massachusetts General Hospital has a psychosurgery mm-hmm. program. In Mexico, I'm reading here. In Mexico, psychosurgery is used in the treatment of anorexia, in the treatment of aggression. Venezuela, three centers performing psychosurgery in Belgium, Netherlands, Spain. In the UK, they've restarted uh, psychosurgery in uh, 2009. So, although it seems so barbaric and so middle aged, lobotomy, uh-huh. because that's what it is, is still performed in uh, the so called developed country. And uh, in addition, as you said, now more and more, the lobotomy is performed chemically, but the result yeah. is the same. You create, as you said, you create zombies. You deprive people for the, from the most noble, the most important things in them. This drive, their, their personality, their, their capacity to think, to choose, to be you. And, and the patients know that. They often say, like, the reason they stop taking their meds is because it makes them feel like a zombie or, like, uh-huh. numb or flat. And so many of them smoke and... I, I never discourage anybody from smoking, even though their doctor does. I'm like, well, if it helps you, if uh, if it brings down your stress, keep doing it. Yeah. You know, my my mom was a psychiatric nurse as well, and I, I was visiting mm-hmm. her often, and 
one of the most striking things I remember it was decades ago. It was indeed the, the patients, the way they were walking in the hallways, in the corridors. You know, this uh-huh. very slow way, like no the energy, no drive, <laughs> no energy, yeah. like absent right. people. And the way they were talking with this, uh, it was difficult yeah, and, to and, talk. And there, to there remember, aren't any think. studies that, like, I mean, the people they're on, the patients, they're on these uh, antipsychotic drugs, but they're also on other drugs like b- blood pressure drugs and, you know, statins, yuck. But uh, there's no studies on polypharmacy over years and years and years, and it's just, you know, chemical brain damage. It's criminal, and we have another caller coming in, so thanks for calling, Tiffany. Big hugs, kisses, and we'll talk to you again next time. Okay. Bye-bye, Tiffany. Hi, caller. What's your name, and where are you calling from? Hello. Hello. Are you receiving us? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hi, this is uh, Rob from New Jersey. Uh, I just wanted to mention about how I came to know about the psychiatric drug. Is it? Uh, um, it we can't really hear you. Rao? Maybe you can call again if you can hear us. No, do you hear me? Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I just okay. called to let you know how I came to know about psychiatric drugs. Yep. Okay, uh, f- 15 years back, actually, I'm having some strange problem. My ears get to become very hot, not physically, but internally I used to feel an intense heat, and my heart used to palpitate. So I went to a doctor. He uh, basically referred me to eye doc- uh, ear doctors and heart doctors. For six months, they did all the tests. They could not find anything. So they sent me to, he pretty much told that there's nothing he can do, so he's going to send it to me, a psychiatrist. So he sent me there, and psychiatrist told me that he can't do anything, he don't know anything, but he can try some different drugs. So they tried literally for one and a half years, all six different drugs. And meanwhile, now one of my friends said, okay, maybe since nothing is working, you try... uh, uh, he told me about this Deepak Chopra guy, and he has some books. So I, uh, this is the first time I heard him. So yeah, I read his books, and he was talking about meditation. The moment I started doing meditation, all my symptoms had literally vanished. Wow. And then I stopped, I stopped taking drugs. Yeah. But I didn't say that to a psychiatrist saying that I'm not taking drugs, but after probably three months, I told him that I'm not really taking drugs, but I was doing meditation and everything is good. So the psychiatrist told me that uh, actually he heard a lot of people saying that who does the meditation, some of the uh, uh, symptoms like this disappear. So he said, okay, you don't need to take the drugs. So it's interesting that it is a, the psychiatrist thing is a, a, if people can't do anything, so it's in your mind, so send it to your psychiatrist. Yeah. I see this pattern even now. For them, it's not profitable to suggest things like meditation or diet or anything because that doesn't involve giving you pills and that doesn't 
make the pharmaceutical companies rich. So they have an investment in, in, in not looking into alter- alternative therapies other than pills. And he can solve the problem because pills won't solve the root cause of the problem. Yeah. So it makes you a customer for life. Yeah. And it also yeah, means that true. they won't get to be your savior, which is what they want. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I always have a problem with people who don't get really mad at this. He's saying that he knew that people were having success with medita- meditation, and he acted like he he didn't give you the option to try it. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, that's a bit disingenuous, but why doesn't anybody see the in- inherent malevolence in that kind of behavior? That that person who, who knows that there's a solution, you're not finding a solution, he's not telling you. Then when you say, I found the solution on my own, he says... Oh yeah, by the way, I've had some other people who said that that worked. So and he didn't he didn't mention it. And as a doctor, you know, he is morally obligated to help you. No, it's not about morals anymore. It's about money. It is. It's it about, is money. about money. I mean, you should, be, you, should, you should hate this guy. I mean, you should hate this guy. I mean, I, you keep, I mean, seriously, this guy is he's evil. What he did was evil. You know, there's no other description. For yeah. All right, yeah, Ralph. Ra- yeah, I'm pretty much it. I want to. Ra- Ra- we got another call coming. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thanks for your call. Oh, thank you, Ralph. Ra- 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 Have a good night. Bye. Hi, caller. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Irene, and I'm calling from North America. Hi, Irene. Um, okay. I wanted to say, Tiffany made a comment earlier on about other countries and how they view mental illness. Um, I've been living in North America now for the last three years, but I am—I uh, was born and raised in Cyprus. I guess everybody knows Cyprus nowadays yeah. with the yeah. news. But anyway, I wanted to say that I remember it was 1995, when I went to the USA for the first time to study psychology, actually. But I remember um, watching uh, TV one night and seeing this commercial about this uh, medication um, that was given for people with social anxiety and depression. And I was totally shocked. At the time, I don't think I've ever heard before back in my country of anything like that, a pill that can help people like, I don't know, be more social or um, feel better. Like back home, if you had any of these problems, it was solved by socialization, by just meeting with your friends and talk about Mm -hmm. it. Maybe a grandma would have a remedy, you know, drink this kind of tea or things like that. But it was unheard of. And of course, for me, anyway. Mm-hmm. And of course, later on, I had to study all these drugs myself at school. So, yeah, I thought that was um, a very good comment that Tiffany made. Yeah. And what, m- what must have been new to you as well coming from Europe is to see advertising for any kind of prescription drug, because I think in Europe... 
Exactly. Lab yes. cannot advertise for drugs because it's not a normal uh, product. Mm -hmm. It's not normal business. We're talking about the health of human beings here. Yeah, but they advertise about, uh, all those sweet things. I mean, every candy bars and sugars are drugs. And yeah, and sugar, yeah, but sugar is definitely a drug. I mean, I mean bread yeah, is essentially but, opium anyway. Yeah, but hang on. I mean, what Pierre saying is yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, I I mean the in the U.S., like 30 years ago, that they that the government allowed pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. to directly advertise to people drugs to people. You know, hey, get Ritalin. And do, you, do you notice how in these advertisements that they, they read through the list of side effects very quickly right at the end? You know, and if, exactly. you side, if you experience any of these side effects, consult your physician. It's kind of and usually hard. those uh, side effects, they, like, seem horrible to me. It's better to have social anxiety or... A little mm. bit of a arthritic pain than to actually okay. experience the symptoms. And want to kill taking. yourself? Well, there's, there's yeah, it'd be better to have schizophrenia. There's something yeah. fundamentally wrong with a drug <clears throat> to calm you down, and one of its side effects is psychosis. You might mm -hmm. go on a psychotic murder rampage after taking a drug that's supposed to calm you down. I mean, it's totally insane that a drug can actually do the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. But, I mean, it's, but they have other drugs to stop a psychosis, so it's all right. <laughs> And by the way, we, the pharmaceutical company, are immune from prosecution. Absolutely. And because of the recently signed into law by Obama uh, legislation that uh, relieves these pharmaceutical companies. And also, I think there's uh, the Monsanto. GMOs, Monsanto. Monsanto. Yeah, you can't sue the pharmaceutical companies and you can't sue Monsanto for destroying your health. Exactly. So, you're stuck. It's all a conspiracy, I tell you. Yeah, I'm smelling. Oh, this world. Somebody give me a psychiatrist. Adolf Um, I just wanted to make one more comment, and it's like uh, it has to do with the preparation of students of psychologists that will become psychologists, and having gone through the system and getting a degree and a master's. It just seems that it's like so inappropriate and so like they don't prepare people at all mm -hmm. of what you know is out there. You go for your practicum, for your clinical experience, and you're kind of like helpless after so much, so many years of schooling and so much money that you pay. You know, is the so. Freudian theory still very present in those classes? Excuse me. Is the Freud? Freudian? Yeah, oh yes, yes. Of course, we hear all about his theories. Yeah, I mean, when I was in college, I took Psych 101, and the guy was just an unabashed Freud. Freudian. He, he looked like Freud as well. He was this old guy with a big white beard. He looked like he was imitating Freud entirely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was why I, didn't, I decided not to pursue psych, psychology. Well, we started with Freud. We can end with Freud. Well, we're not finished yet. <laughs> yeah. We're not? No. Uh, you right, guys, Marina. thank Thanks you very much. Great show. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, I wanted to make a point because she, she brought this thing back to where, where it was a while ago. I wanted to make this particular point and draw people's attention again to this book that I think they should, they should all read, which is The uh, Persuasion, the Science of Influence by Cialdini. Um, why do they make laws so that you can't sue Monsanto? Uh, why do they pass this legislation? Uh, obviously because people want to. Um, what you see in the U.S. Is, is something that Chaldini identified called social proof, um, which is where uh, you make it look like a lot of people are doing a certain thing. And a lot of what's going on in the U.S. is uh, a, a lot of 
effort is put into making you think that people act and behave a certain way in America. And it's a constant droning propaganda about this. But the real truth that comes through when you see legislation like that is that obviously people really aren't acting that way. People are actually uh, malcontents. They are not contented with the system. They want to sue Monsanto. They want to sue pharmaceutical companies, and they are trying to. And the government is passing laws to, to, to stop them from being able to do it, which should tell you something about what people really think and feel in the United States as opposed to what you're seeing presented in the media, mm -hmm. that they are social proofing you. They are manipulating you by presenting you with images of people you know, going along, towing the line, doing all this different stuff. And it's not really the truth, actually. I think a majority of Americans are malcontents. They are maladjusted. That is why there are all these new disease categories. That is why there's well, all this effort. You see, that, that, that kind of goes back to the whole Bernays thing, right? Bernays, when Freud came up with this idea and Bernays took it and the government liked it of this, uh, un these uncontrollable dangerous urges lying just below the surface among the population that needed to be controlled, Bernays claimed that he could do that just by, by stimulating these inner violent desires and then sating them with consumer products. So it was all designed... It was in league with big business to get people to, to become consumers so that the rationale was these people, they could just turn into a violent, crazy mob. At any moment, we've got we to gotta have a release valve for these violent inner urges. That is, is really bullshit at the end of the day. People don't have those violent inner urges, generally speaking. But they decided that was the case. They needed a release valve and that they were going to uh, release it by – release this energy of this, this whatever – uh, via consumers, by giving them things that they would make them feel better, would make them, you know, consumer products, etc. But it was all obviously a ruse just to enrich big business and stuff, you know. And that didn't work because it, it's like saying that, you know, someone who's depressed saying, well, if you just go and buy that nice new dress or those nice new pair of shoes, you'll feel better. And people buy it. You know, that's, people think, okay, I'm going to go and buy myself something new to make myself feel better. But for a whole generation of that, you're going to produce people who are fundamentally discontented because it's not addressing any of their real needs. And this is one thing they never addressed, which is the real needs of people, how you really keep people happy in a really fundamental way. And, um, you know, then today, so that didn't work. And then you had the whole, in the 60s, the whole kind of like change in psychiatry towards just letting it all out, you know. You know, they had these group sessions where you just scream and beat pillows and do backflips and, you know, just let it all out. And that was manipulated as well. But, and today we have all of these prescription drugs for kids with all these different disorders, that, which are basically just normal human emotions and feelings. Sure, it's, it's a function Normal of, reaction to what's, to, going, to on what's going on in society. And people just... And you see, there's a... There, there's a Anna Freud treated Marilyn Monroe. No, but she was an associate, a close associate of Anna Freud, or he was a close associate of Anna Freud. Anna Freud was on the scene, you know, and, she, so she, and it shocked everybody when Marilyn Monroe committed suicide, uh, even though she was going through this fabulous new psycho, one of, psycho, one of psychotherapy. One of psychoanalysis epic failures. Yeah, exactly, and it, it was very high profile, and Marilyn Monroe was married to, for a while, to Arthur Miller, yeah. the famous playwright, and he had something to say on it, and I think it's relevant here, so I'm just going to play the clip of a little work. My argument with so much psychoanalysis is the preconception that suffering is a mistake or a sign of weakness or a sign even of illness when in fact possibly the greatest truths we know have come out of people's suffering.
that the problem is not to undo suffering or to wipe it off the face of the earth, but to make it inform our lives instead of trying to cure ourselves of it constantly and avoid it and avoid anything but that lobotomized sense of what they call happiness. There's too much of an attempt, it seems to me, to think in terms of controlling man rather than freeing him, of, of uh, defining him rather than, uh, than, than uh, letting him go. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's part of the whole ideology of this age, which is power mad. Whatever, that was a bit distorted, but you heard more or less what he was saying, and I think that's a, a, a relevant point here, which is that, you know, life experiences, and as, um, as, um, well, from Hawaii, from Hawaii. Um, well, the thing is, is people Eric, perceive Erica the, Hawaii, the people, saying. the people perceive the world as being unpleasant, harsh, cruel uh, against them. They suffer as a result of this, and then out of their suffering, you know, if they are allowed to express themselves, if they are allowed to communicate with one another, if they are allowed to follow uh, their natural instincts, they find solutions to their suffering. They find solutions to the social problems that cause their suffering. But when you have when you have pathological individuals in power, you know, who are enforcing this suffering on them, you know, for, for their own greed, for their uh, domination issues, for, you know, whatever purposes, you know, to make money, to, uh, to make wars, to do all the evil things that the, the power elite do, then, then the people have no opportunity to utilize their suffering in the way that is necessary, but of course, what was is going to ultimately happen is that the suffering is going to reach such a pitch that it is going to boil over, and then it's going to be like the French Revolution all over again. You know, it's going to be off with their heads, mm -hmm. and I mean, and it's going to be indiscriminate off with their heads because a lot of people who should not have lost their heads did in, during the French Revolution because, of course, uh, whenever something like that comes up, then psychopaths move in. Once again, as quickly as possible, change sides. You know, they're like chameleons, and then they uh, use it to target their enemies. So it's, uh, it's it's a really dangerous game that the power elite are playing. They're playing with their own lives. They're playing with our lives. They're they're playing with society. They're um, they're they're they're, they've, they're sowing the wind, and they're going to reap the whirlwind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this idea that. Um, Joe just mentioned where Bernays suggested they actually stimulate these unconscious drives mm -hmm. and so on in a way that they could manage and control it. Well, we, we see it at the time was for it's what led to the explosion of consumerism. The same thing is applied on a on a political level as well. And like Laura just said, it's going to backfire. It, it was a bunch of psychopaths coming up with theories about normal human beings, about the psyche of normal human beings that did not apply whatsoever. And that that was completely bogus and they did it it was all a complete it was a farce really they, and i don't know whether they knew it or not but um i mean they used it they used this understanding of the of, of the manipulation it's, i mean this whole idea of psychiatry the founder of psychiatry in the u.s bernays who spread it his ideas were used since then and right up until today as essentially propaganda to manipulate the population right. of the U.S. to go to war, to do every, everything to their detriment. And it's all founded in the idea of psychiatry as, expo uh, as exposed by essentially psychopathic personality. I would like to point something out. Think about the enormity of the machine that is required 
to keep society the way it is, to maintain the status quo. There is something fundamentally wrong with the society that requires the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, the ATF, the DEA, the LAPD, the local police, state police, homeland security. They need propaganda, FEMA. They need all of these institutions. They need all of these propaganda campaigns. Think about COINTELPRO. And what does COINTELPRO tell you about the society that it has to exist in? That there are so many dissident organizations, even not necessarily dissident against the government, but maybe dissident against just some social thing, corporate thing. There are so many of those groups in the country and in the world that the government has to maintain a massive army of infiltrators and agent provocateurs just to keep them under control. Think of the billions and billions of dollars that are spent on propaganda campaigns, that are spent on wars to suppress insurgents. Think about all of the money that is spent on protecting you from terrorism. But did you ever stop to wonder, why are there even terrorists? What is wrong with the world? These things are necessary to maintain society. They are keeping together something that is going to fall apart mm-hmm. and is falling apart, and it requires such an effort to keep together. You may want to stop and wonder, is it even worth it? Mm-hmm. I mean, how crappy is society that it requires that much effort to maintain? Mm-hmm. Hard controlled in society. The, the society they envisioned, the term that Bernays came up with, this is 1920s, so I think it was under President Coolidge, was happiness machines. Mm-hmm. They were going to make everybody no, that, happy. That that was actually Hoover, who Hoover. who who took up Bernays and all these other idiots, uh, took up their idea of the consumer and 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 using consumerism to release this these unconscious drives. Uh, he um, he got a group of advertising executives and journalists together in 1928 and, and said, "You have taken over the job of creating desire." and have transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines. Machines which have become the key to economic progress. This was President Hoover. Economic progress for who? For the big corporations. There's more and more people poor. Are you rich? Do you own anything? Do you even own your home? Do you own your car? You don't have any wealth. There's no economic benefit for you. That was the year before the Great Depression as well. You know, I mean, Constantly moving... There's no economic progress. There's economic devolution. You don't have anything. Happy machines, and actually, the happiness. How the are truth, you happy? A happiness machine, and the truth is almost the opposite. Human beings are not only machines. And, happiness uh, machines that need antidepressants. Knowing the, the state okay. of the society, they're not happy either. Yep. It obviously hasn't worked. And so, all of this is thanks to science. Mm-hmm. Yes. Science is great, isn't it? Yeah. So, on that note, I think we'll end with a quote here sent in by Grimm, a quote from Samuel Goldwyn, who said, um, anyone who goes to see a psychiatrist ought to have their head examined. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we've reached our time limit, more or less, and we are going to call it a night there. Thanks to all our listeners and to all our callers. You're all wonderful and happy happiness machines, people. We're happy consumers. Yes. And we will be back next week at the same time. Buy more stuff. Join the army. We hope you can join us in. Good night. Bye-bye. <clears throat>